1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we engage in wrong think on a regular basis. I know it sounds terribly subversive, but truth be told, it's really all about thinking for yourself, owning your worldview, questioning the narratives that dominate our news cycle and deciding for yourself, which is the correct direction to go we got some great stuff ahead of us this hour. Our program brought to you by Monticello College, also by pure-light.com. These are the most incredible LED light bulbs you will ever encounter in your life in that uh, they clear the air of odors, they disinfect, they kill pathogens. Yeah, light bulbs. Go to pure-light.com and you can get all the details. And also HSLAMO.com. <clears throat> That's my friend Spencer Worthington and his uh, marvelous ammo company. Uh, you can find a link to each one of these in the show notes, which you'll find at the thebryanhideshow.com. So, language is, that's the medium that I like to work in. Not only do I do the spoken word, but I like to write as well. A little bit of a wordsmith here. Um, I'm still, you know, a noob, but I do my best but it's been very interesting to watch over the years and i mean my broadcast career goes back hmm, 35 36 years my writing career about half of that time and it's crazy to me how language in the mouth of a politician never really serves to clarify the meaning of a given policy almost always it's to distort or to obfuscate and and keep the the hidden or keep the meaning hidden from the public's view In other words, when a politician says something, your sense of skepticism should probably be, you know, front and center in looking at what they're saying. I'm not saying that all politicians are liars. Some of them certainly are. But I'm saying that oftentimes they will shade their language in ways to make things sound very plausible or very reasonable that, in fact, are not. So there's a little bit of a mind game going on here. And uh, this, I think one of the best examples I can think about this is the uh, latest $2 trillion, I'm putting this in quotation marks, infrastructure spending policy being proposed by the Biden administration. Now, what do they mean? Well, this is, uh, I I think I heard uh, Joe Biden talk about this in the sense that, uh, you know, this is going to be one of the biggest investments in American history. Okay, hold the phone there for a second, Joe. Uh, Investment. So who is putting up their money for the sake of uh, creating greater value? Isn't that what an investment is for? Aren't investments supposed to create value as opposed to simply consume? Because from what I can see, you know, even, even if this legitimately was just to you know, repair aging bridges and highways and dams and whatever else you know needs to be uh, fixed in terms of infrastructure, water systems, electrical grids it would still be more for the sake of consumption or just creating jobs. It's like Napoleon having you know, people uh, dig a ditch one day, pay them for it, then pay them to fill the ditch in the next day. Where is the value really being created? Now, this is not to say that, uh, that value can't be created. I think it just happens better when it's taking place in private investment People investing in creating power companies or, or something like this, that would actually create value because those businesses exist for the purpose of, you know, creating value so that they can turn a profit. The more value they create for the people they are serving, the bigger their profit should be. Government has no such compunction to do this. It can only consume. It doesn't create value. It can only take in the form of taxes or borrowing money that the taxpayers then have to pay back with interest. Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education has a terrific article about uh, nine crazy examples of unrelated waste and partisan spending in Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. And I guess the, the gist of this is, if you get nothing else, only about a third of that $2 trillion actually goes to the kinds of spending that people would usually associate with infrastructure. So let's give you a few examples here, courtesy of Brad Palumbo. He says the Biden administration on Wednesday released a comprehensive two plus trillion dollar spending proposal ostensibly focused on infrastructure. But there's much more to this plan than meets the eye. A glance at the proposal reveals many items that appear only tenuously related to infrastructure. In fact, several don't appear to be related to infrastructure at all. So this is taken directly from the fact sheet on the plan the White House released. First example of uh, unrelated waste and partisan spending. How about $10 billion to create a civilian climate corps? Ah, climate change front and center. Taxpayers. Fund this. $10 billion. The Biden administration proposes spending $10 billion to create a civilian climate corps, claiming this $10 billion investment will put a new diverse generation of Americans to work, conserving our public lands and waters, bolstering community resilience, and advancing environmental justice through a new civilian climate corps. I'm sorry, Orwell is sitting there somewhere in the hereafter going, dang. That's that's some pretty potent top-shelf newspeak right there. Environmental justice? Really? Okay, number two. $20 billion to advance racial equity and environmental justice. This is where you really want to get politicians to define their terms. What do you mean by equity as opposed to equality, right? Is there equality before the law? Hey, that's different than equity. Well, what is Equity. Is that that reparations of some sort? And environmental justice? The proposal sets aside a whopping $20 billion, more than the latest COVID package spent on vaccines, for a new program that will reconnect neighborhoods, cut off by historic investments, and ensure new projects increase opportunity, advance racial equity and environmental justice, and promote affordable access. I don't know what that word salad is proposing to, to communicate to us. But it's supposed to sound, ooh, that's impressive. You know, if, if you were to take that to like the Joker did in The Dark Knight and just light that $20 billion on fire, I'm not sure you'd be that much worse off. Number three, $175 billion in subsidies for electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, Brad writes, a technological novelty so good it won't catch on without hundreds of billions in subsidies. At least that's apparently what the Biden administration thinks, as its infrastructure proposal earmarks a $174 billion investment to win the electric vehicle market. Now, the spending will take the form of manufacturing subsidies and consumer tax credits, which historically have benefited wealthy families most. For comparison, the proposal carves out more for green energy goodies than it does on the total $115 billion to modernize bridges, highways, roads, and main streets that are in most need or most critical need of repair. Spending $175 billion to prop up electric vehicles and to encourage people to buy electric vehicles. Now, I'm going to confess something, and I guess this makes me a little bit of a snob. I'm a Mustang owner. I've got a nice classic. Yeah, it's actually, I think it's an antique as of this year. Uh, It's it's a classic uh, 94 Mustang GT. 5.0, five-speed, beautiful little car. It's for sale, by the way. If you're interested, drop me a line. But I saw yesterday for the very first time Ford's electric Mustang. I think it's called the Mach 5. I couldn't read it very well because it was in the dark at the parking lot. And... Gosh, I'm trying not to be rude because this is somebody's ride that I'm about to insult here. That is the most butt ugly car I have seen in a long time, and I've seen some pretty ugly cars. Nissan Juke, I'm looking your way. But it it was clearly an electric vehicle. There were no there was no exhaust pipes or anything on this. It had the Mustang emblem, which was what drew my attention. But it kind of looked like I don't know. It looked to me like a Tesla had an affair. Maybe, uh, you know, actually, you know, accidentally got its girlfriend pregnant, you know, at the high school prom or something, and then, you know, split. That's what this Mustang looked like. It looked kind of like a Mustang, and kind of like a Tesla, but it was just ugly. And, and I, I know, I'm being a snob, and maybe I'm wrong for saying this, but, you know, what made the Mustang such a, such a standout car was the fact that it was a, an accessible rear-wheel drive Combustion, you know, internal combustion engine, uh, gasoline car, and and yes, a bit of a muscle car, if you will. Now, I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade who who wants one, but if the government has to pay you in order to convince you that yeah, this would be a good idea to have one of these, maybe it's not an idea that everybody's really ready to embrace. Okay, so these are three of the nine crazy examples of unrelated waste and partisan spending in a $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. We're going to touch on the rest of them, just the other side of these messages. Stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm feeling just a tiny pang of guilt like I I may have thrown a big wet blanket right over everybody who's been aching for an electronic vehicle or, you know, an EV. And I, look, if that's your thing, that's cool. You know, I mean, look, my little daughter, who I love very much and and I respect her opinion, she is, uh, she's not really into cars a whole lot, but there's something about Teslas that really makes her just go gaga. If we if we were to bring home a Tesla, I said if <laughs> she would be ecstatic. But uh, 175 billion dollars in subsidies for electric vehicles, as part of this two plus trillion dollar infrastructure proposal. Yeah, I'm not seeing how that works with infrastructure. But okay, here's number four on the list compiled by Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education: 213 billion dollars to rebuild or retrofit. 2 million houses and buildings. When most people hear infrastructure, what they think of is roads, bridges, tunnels, and so forth, but the Biden administration's definition of the term is Olympian gymnastics-level flexible. Apparently, the president considers it infrastructure spending to allocate $213 billion to build or retrofit 2 million sustainable houses and buildings. Now, they also slip in f- $213 billion, I should say. Um, and, and they slip in another $40 billion for public housing, stating this will disproportionately benefit women, people of color, and people with disabilities. I think this was part of the Green New Deal, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't this one of the things that, um, uh, what's her name, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about a couple of years ago? The idea that, well, what we need to do is retrofit and make all these houses environmentally sound. And again, this is kind of like the dig the ditch, then fill it back in. Two hundred thirteen billion dollars? Oh, sure, no problem. Come on, we're talking trillions here. This is chump change. Number five, one hundred billion dollars for new public schools and making school lunches greener. <laughs> hey, I'm a big, I'm as big a fan of school lunch as anybody else, but I can't wait to see what a green paper or a green kind of lunch is. You know, paper plates or whatever. That uh, Brad. Palumbo says you might remember that the last COVID legislation had $128.5 billion in taxpayer dole-outs for public schools. Much of the money will be spent years after the pandemic. And interestingly enough, there was no requirement that the schools actually open. But this was apparently just the beginning. The Biden infrastructure plan includes another $100 billion to upgrade and build new public schools. And the proposal says funds will also be provided to improve our school kitchens so they can be used to, to better prepare nutritious meals for our students and go green by reducing or eliminating the use of paper plates and other disposable materials. Why don't we just give, give the kids a little tin cup? Then we can fill it with that nice green gruel and, you know, they can come up and please, sir, may I have more? Number six, $12 billion for community colleges. Now, one generally thinks of infrastructure and higher education as separate things, separate distinct sectors, but the Biden infrastructure plan slips in $12 billion for states to spend on community colleges. Number seven, billions to eliminate racial and gender inequities in STEM. This proposal includes several billion dollars allocated to reduce supposed racial and gender inequities in science, technology, engineering, and math, research, and development. What this has to do with interstate infrastructure is not adequately explained. But it does make the social justice crowd thrill, so hey, it's got that going for it. Number eight, $100 billion to expand broadband internet and government control of it. Loosely lumped under the broad term digital infrastructure, the plan allocates $100 billion to bring affordable, reliable, high-speed broadband to every American. Interestingly, the proposal openly states that it wishes to promote government and NGO control of broadband and push out private sector providers. It prioritizes support for broadband networks owned, operated by, or affiliated with local governments, nonprofits, and cooperatives, providers with less pressure to turn profits. Number nine, $25 billion for government childcare programs. You can probably already see that uh, this one's causing a little heartburn. The plan includes $25 billion to help upgrade child care facilities and increase the supply of child care in areas that need it most. According to the White House, funding would be provided through a Child Care Growth and Innovation Fund for states to build a supply of infant and toddler care in high-need areas. Now, Brad Palumbo says, look, this is just scratching the surface. The above list totals hundreds of billions in waste and unrelated partisan spending slipped into the Biden administration's expensive infrastructure plan. But it should be stressed that this list is far from exhaustive. That's just what one reporter was able to find in a few hours of research. By the time this proposal is translated into hundreds of pages of legislation, if not thousands, and subjected to Congress and lobbyists' influence there will no doubt be even more waste and government policies, or partisan policies rather, slipped into it. Yes, Brad says, there is serious debate about the state of American infrastructure and the proper role of the federal government in addressing its deficiencies. However, of this plan's more than $2 trillion in proposed spending, just $621 actually goes to transportation infrastructure and resilience. Yeah. Just a third, roughly one-third of the money, goes to the kinds of spending people would usually associate with infrastructure, like fixing roads and bridges, modernizing public transit. Now, the question is, can Biden get away with this? Well, Brad Palumbo says, remember, only 10% of the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion in so-called COVID relief spending was actually directed to COVID-19. Much of it was went to waste, politician pet projects, and partisan priorities. And the president appears to have taken a similar approach in infrastructure spending. He says, unfortunately, it's not much of a surprise. As American journalist and satirist P.J. O'Rourke once said, giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Amen. <laughs> that is uh, that is so true. What do we do about it? Well, I don't know. You and I probably aren't going to have as much influence as a lot of those lobbyists are going to have but I think being aware of it, if you talk to your politicians, you know, your elected representatives, this is a time to hold them accountable. Congress controls the purse, spr- purse strings. None of that can happen without Congress's approval. So maybe this is a good time to speak up. All I can say is, it, to me, this looks more like looting the treasury and making sure that our friends and our cronies and those who are political fellow travelers get to enjoy some of the spoils before somebody turns the lights out. Because this kind of spending is not sustainable. And when I look at all the, the little different social imperatives that are sprinkled throughout, it's it's pretty clear this is a way to impose on the taxpayers and force them to pay for what's being imposed on them Ideas that uh, could not otherwise be sold to the public. Something politicians also are, are very good at. Okay, shifting gears. Much as we may not want to believe it, we have a moment of choice approaching, and I'm talking a true fork in the road. Here's the question. Will vaccine passports become the mandatory badge of compliance in society? Meaning, will you be able to live your life without a vaccine passport? I know that seems, you know, conspiratorial. Oh, come on, Brian. You know, your tinfoil hat's on too tight. Ah, maybe it is. But I think this is a good question to be asking. What do you do? What if we are being set up to accept something that is so universal, you can't so much as get on public transportation, you can't hold a job, you can't go shopping, whatever, unless you have submitted to what uh, those in power say you must in the name, of course, of public health. Michelle Malkin has an excellent article on this global trace-and-track regime that's being constructed right under our noses. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock, so we're going to have to get to it here, the other side of the break. Have you asked yourself the question, how far would I go? Will I go along with it? How uncomfortable would I have to be before I just admitted I can't go on without you know, submitting? Is this the hill I'm willing to die on? Hopefully figuratively, but perhaps literally? All right, we'll explore all this, just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. This is an article from Michelle Malkin. I saw this published on intellectualtakeout.org, the global trace and track regime. And look, I have strong feelings about a whole passport uh, vaccine or vaccine passport scheme. But uh, so far, it still seems pretty distant. I suspect that, uh, you know, this is kind of the opposite of, you know, uh, objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear. It's the object in your windscreen that is closer than it appears. And I uh, I think we better take this seriously. Michelle Malkin says the Biden administration's vaccine passport scheme is just the teeny tiny tip of a massive privacy invasion iceberg. She says a year ago this week. She began chronicling the worldwide weaponization of COVID-19 by big government and big business to trace and track the health data of untold hundreds of millions of human beings. So let's review. In March of 2020, Singapore unleashed a Bluetooth app called Trace Together on Google Play and Apple Store to track people who tested positive for coronavirus and notify others through their cell phones. For those who argue that participation is completely voluntary... She says, bear in mind that Singapore functions as a high-tech dictatorship, where refusal to comply with stay-at-home orders and refusal to share GPS location data with health bureaucrats are criminal offenses, subject to six months' imprisonment and or a $10,000 fine. Now, the Singapore system was quickly expanded to require users to submit their national ID numbers and passport numbers. A few months later, the government issued wearable tracing tokens with QR codes to all 5.7 million residents in Singapore. Plans are in the works to formally mandate trace-together enrollment for anyone in cinemas, restaurants, workplaces, schools, and shopping malls. Yeah, but that's somewhere else, I hear you say. Okay, well, listen to this, though. Dozens of states, plus countries including Germany, the UK and a large swath of Canada now use COVID-19 exposure notification apps akin to Singapore's that are built on Google and Apple's exposure notification application programming interface. On March 9th of 2020, the Trump administration's U.S. Department of Health and Human Services unveiled new data rules requiring doctors and hospitals to send a core of set of medical data directly to third-party apps after a patient has authorized the information exchange. Google, Apple, and Microsoft, all at the forefront of health data mining, sat in on the rulemaking process meetings. And Michelle Malkin says the tech oligarchs are in the driver's seat. They're not in the back of the bus. She says as she's reported in investigative documentaries and in her column for years, Google and YouTube is already knee-deep in mental health data mining of adults and children despite repeated privacy violations. They've mined students' emails in violation of the Federal Family and Educational Rights and Privacy Act. They've violated the Federal Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Google secretly harvested tens of millions of medical records with identifying names, lab results, diagnoses, immunization records, and prescriptions from thousands of hospitals across 21 states through Project Nightingale a partnership with Ascension Health System to build a search tool and data analytics using machine learning algorithms. It was a year ago this month, Google launched Verily, a COVID-19 screening and testing website. California Governor Gavin Newsom forked over $55 million to subsidize Verily contracts with 28 countries. The contracts allow Google Verily to mine and share home addresses and medical information with unnamed contractors and state and federal health authorities. That's according to Kaiser Health News. In April 2020, COVID control freak Anthony Fauci mentioned that the feds had also begun investigating certificates of immunity for American citizens. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio launched a snitch line urging people to upload photos of businesses not in compliance with social distancing rules. Georgia officials dispatched law enforcement officers to random private homes in Fulton and Kolb counties to ask residents questions about their health and to collect blood samples for an antibody test. Police agencies in Florida, Connecticut, and New Jersey deployed drones to enforce social distancing and experiment with fever and facial mask detection. In May of 2020, China rolled out temperature armbands to college students. In August 2020, the Butler, New Jersey Public Schools mandated temperature armbands manufactured by ACWEL for students and staff to be worn at all times as a condition of access to public education. Volon Technology successfully marketed and distributed Bluetooth enabled, tracking Bluetooth enabled badges and beacons to school districts that can track campus movement movements of COVID positive wearers for up to 30 days and identify others with whom they've had close contact. Princeton Identity rolled out new touchless biometric and iris scanning products to be installed on college campuses. Online proctoring services that proliferated in the age of COVID, including Proctorio, Factorial, and Respondus Monitor, collect college students' facial recognition data, which can be sold to third parties. And then she says, this week, the Washington Free Beacon obtained a Biden COVID team document outlining a trace and track program developed by the University of Illinois, using Bluetooth technology that mimics the Singapore model she flagged a year ago. Malkin says this week, snoozing Americans finally woke up to the Biden vaccine passport plan and the New York vaccine verification program known as the Excelsior Pass. But she says these credentialing systems have been in the works for years among U.S. and global health agencies, long before corona meant nothing more than a beer or bright light to most people. She says the vaccination credential initiative is a joint endeavor of the feds, Microsoft, Oracle, Salesforce, the Mayo Clinic, electronic medical records giant Epic, big pharma CEOs, and globalist nonprofit entities, all coordinated by the military-industrial powerhouse, Miter Corporation. That's a lot to get your mind around, she says. These private or these public-private partnerships between tech companies and surveillance states obliterate any meaningful distinction between free market initiatives and government directives. Big tech, big health, and big government all work seamlessly to ensure the success of the global trace-and-track regime. There is no freedom to choose in a climate of collusion and a culture of conformity. And she concludes, the conspiracy is real. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to accept that. But I'm going to ask you to consider, could it be a possibility? I've been running that question through my mind and I don't like the conclusions that I'm coming to. I wish I could say otherwise, but this doesn't seem to pass the sniff test. So, I guess my only caution is be very very careful and if you have any kind of uh, if if you have any kind of of heartburn about to being tracked and traced wherever you go maybe think about this and don't uh, don't necessarily plan on complying. Sorry, that's a decision you have to make for yourself. I'm just offering a suggestion, but I'm telling you the moment of, of truth is is fast upon us. And if you wait until it's at your doorstep to try to make up your mind, you're going to be too late. You're going to be behind the curve. You need to know what your line in the sand is. You know, for me, if, if the um, vaccinations become mandatory... That is one of my lines in the sand. I will not have someone, you know, against my will, inject something into my body. Right? My body, my choice. <laughs> I thought that was a thing. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. By the way, I'm also including in the show notes this week um, a great lesson for America from what's happening in Myanmar. I don't know if you have been watching the military crackdown take place. Um, if, if you don't know the history of it, uh, I think this is the second time the military has seized power in Myanmar. But uh, for some years, they've permitted, uh, the, the national security establishment in Myanmar has permitted other branches of government to maintain the facade of being in control but, or being in charge of the government in the country. But civilian democratic rule, Jacob Hornberger says, was always by permission. The reality was that their national security establishment was always in charge and could, as a practical matter, resume its total control over the government and the nation anytime it wanted, which is what it recently did. And since then, military and intelligence forces have imposed a severe crackdown against people who are protesting the military's direct resumption of power. And I don't mean that just they're, they're standing there flexing and trying to look mean. They're killing people, hundreds of people, being shot dead in the streets, And if you think, uh, well, at least we're safe from that in America, (laughs) well, I think we should probably be very careful and and not uh, get ourselves too worked up into thinking that we are immune from this. The national security part of our government is the entity that seems to be running a great deal of the federal government. And in in, uh, Jacob Hornberger's piece here, he says, it permits the other three branches of federal government to maintain the facade of being in control. But he says, it's just a facade. Not a very pleasant thought, right? He says, uh, maybe take a look at it. Consider what the national security state is doing, what it has been doing in the dark, where it's more comfortable working, you know, out of the light of day. Yeah, this is not something that we're immune to here. So for those who think, well, it could never happen here, the bad news is it's happening. The good news is your consent still matters. And you can withdraw or withhold your consent if that's not something that jives with what you think should be going on. We'll talk more about that just the other side of the break.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I kind of feel like I'm on a little bit of a tear today. So, look, if it feels like I'm thumping my finger into your chest and telling you, hey, listen to this, I apologize. Maybe this is just the product of a whole week's worth of, uh, ah, there's a lot of information I want to get out there, you know, building up. So if I'm sounding just a little bit vehement, I apologize. This stuff matters to me. It, it matters because I am an advocate for freedom of conscience i'm an advocate for personal liberty i'm an advocate for property rights and for the free market and i see all of these things under attack right now and to to put this into perspective you know we're we're kind of trained and conditioned from a very early age to see things in terms of well it's, a, it's the democrats that are responsible for this or the republicans are the cause of these problems the whole red versus blue mentality it's it's handy and a lot of people seem to adhere to it it's a very hard habit to shake but it doesn't accurately describe the dynamic that's really at work here. In fact, most of the conflicts that we see around us are based in the dynamic of the collective versus the individual, or as Jeff Minnick puts it, the collectivist versus the rest of us. Now he says, my preferred online dictionary defines a collectivist as an adherent of the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. But he says that's too broad a definition, and it's way too flabby. High school football teams, the Navy SEALs, and nuclear families are not examples of collectivist organizations. He says a collectivist advocates powerful, centralized governments. Collectivists want us to practice groupthink, and they miss the warnings in Kipling's lines from the gods of the copybook headings. Quote, In the Carboniferous Epic, we were promised abundance for all by robbing selected Peter to pay for collective Paul. End quote. See collectivists see the indivi- see individuals as part of a herd, sheep to be controlled and manipulated for the good of humankind, although they magically exclude themselves from sharing this pasture. Now Jeff Minnick says some of my fam- my family members and friends are semi-collectivists. That is, they buy into mainstream media propaganda. They look to the federal government to solve our nation's problems. However. The way they live, however the way they live belies these beliefs. They work hard because they pay their bills. They believe in free enterprise. They profess to love liberty. In fact, he says, personally, I doubt I know a single true collectivist, but I just read about them in the news. They live in and around Washington, D.C. and some of our state capitals. He says, these are the government types who claim to know what's best for the rest of us. And here he spells out what some of the symptoms are that you're dealing with collectivists. These collectivists want to rule by edicts and fiats. The rest of us want a limited government that operates in accordance with our Constitution. Collectivists want to regulate every aspect of life. The rest of us want to be left alone. Collectivists believe they are wiser than the rest of us and they want the power to act as our nannies. The rest of us believe in personal responsibility and self-government in our personal affairs. He says, if we study these collectivists, we begin to see certain shared psychologies at work. Collectivists, in general, are joyless. Watch them carefully and you'll discover most of them lack both a sense of humor and any zest for living. These grim-faced commanders of destiny fit H.L. Mencken's definition of puritanism, the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Fun isn't a word associated with these folks. Collectivists don't worship a celestial power. Instead, They worship only power itself. They speak of doing good for the people, but the good they do is mostly for themselves, which explains why so many politicians in D.C. are multimillionaires. True, good deeds, donating to a charity, tending to a sick neighbor, are worthy and noble enterprises. But when a collectivist mentions seeking the good of the people, he says it's time to put your hand on your wallet and circle the wagons. Jeff Minnick says, collectivists show little love for our country or its history. They frequently speak of our flaws, our racism, our sexual bigotries, and our economic disparities. Rarely, however, do we hear them express any appreciation for the good America has done, both at home and abroad. It's the oddest thing. Collectivists want to have charge of a country for which they feel nothing but contempt. Hadn't thought of it that way, but it's true. Collectivists believe in their right to free speech, but they wish to remove that right from the rest of us. They are a tribe of visionaries out to build a utopia on Earth. You know, like the ones in North Korea, Cuba, and China. And the rest of us are the ignorant unwashed who need re-education until, to paraphrase a line from Cool Hand Luke, we get our minds right. Now he says, when I was a boy, Father Knows Best was a hit show on television. Today's hit show on mainstream media is The Feds Know Best. And despite the federal government's many failures, collectivists want the rest of us to trust in government as if it were a god. I believe President Biden actually was saying as much just a couple of weeks ago. Come on, man. Put your trust in the government and in science to protect you. This isn't politics, man. Oh, boy. Jeff Minnick says the rest of us know that depending on government to solve a problem is like asking a five-year-old to repair that burst pipe in the basement. So how do the rest of us do battle with the collectivists? Well, he says, even at this late date, we still live in a republic. We still have freedom to write our elected officials to vote and voice our opinions in person at various meetings of our local governments. We can look for truth instead of propaganda, and we can teach our children to do the same. More importantly, he says, we can remember our history and our liberties. In our hearts, minds, and souls, we can keep those ideas untarnished by the ideologies of the collectivists. And I guess that's really where it goes. It it comes down to the individual. I know, it's a big collectivist front that's coming against us and trying to force us all into submission. But if you look at that from the standpoint of, we can look for truth instead of propaganda and teach our children to do the same... My friend, that is probably the reason why you are listening to this sad little podcast with only six listeners total. (laughs) I kid. It's why I do what I do, though. I am trying to to speak the truth as I best understand it. I'm trying to teach people to value and cherish that truth as well as to learn from our history and to, to hang on to our liberties and to defend those liberties. I'm more interested in trying to tell you what I am for than what I am against. But if you were to ask me, well, what are you against? I would say collectivism in any form. Because it steals what is most precious from us. And that's the ability to live our lives on our own terms. A couple final thoughts here before we wrap things up for the hour. Um, I wanted to share some thoughts with you about, uh, about wisdom versus passion. Now, there's a lot of passion going on right now. In fact, I'm seeing a ton of people um, just thoroughly passionate about whatever they're doing. And yet, passion and wisdom seem to be at odds. So we need to distinguish between the two. Passion can be understood as a strong, barely controlled emotion. In fact, this is what fuels most activism, and it's recognized by the obsessive fervency with which it calls for immediate gratification. We don't have time to think. We need to do something right now. Think about it. When's the last time you heard of somebody committing a crime of wisdom? Nope, but we hear lots about crimes of passion. Wisdom, on the other hand, represents experience and knowledge that remains true in any time or any place. Unlike popular knowledge, which can become obsolete over time, wisdom is based in sound judgment that's actually stood the test of time. And while passion can be a positive force when it's properly tempered with wisdom, it's a really poor basis for making important decisions. This is true on the personal level as well as on the societal level. Now, nowhere is this more clear than in what passes for public discourse today, where impassioned demands are outpacing wisdom in a rush to deal with society's problems. But the problem with this approach is that it sets the stage for very serious, unintended consequences. And that is something that we don't want to mess with. Passion urges us to childishly follow the path of least resistance with little regard for what lies beyond the moment. In fact, it rejects the hard-won wisdom of billions of mature minds spanning thousands of years of recorded human history. Passion is what makes us more susceptible to an ethically compromised press and to the promises of power-seeking politicians Passion's what encourages us to pass judgment on people we've never met and to condemn ideas we don't understand. If you really want to get down to it, unbridled passion has been the ideological fuel for the most enslaving, bloodthirsty movements to ever have afflicted mankind. It's the breeding ground for intemperate minds. I'm going to leave you with a quote here from uh, Edmund Burke, British statesman, who said. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites, in proportion as their love to justice is above their rapacity, in proportion as their soundness and sobriety of understanding is above their vanity and presumption, in proportion as they are more disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and the good, in preference to the flattery of knaves. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions form their fetters. So I guess the takeaway here is passion when tempered by wisdom and combined with persuasion can be productive and inspiring. I'm very passionate about what I do, but I try to combine some inspiration and persuasion to ask you to consider it. But when you weaponize passion and you merge it with government force, you end up with a tool of endless malfeasance.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.